Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. And welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather, and today I am joined by a wonderful guest from the other side of the world again. My name is Charlotte, and uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on, Charlotte. Do you mind telling me a little bit about yourself and where you're from, what you do, etc.? Yeah, so um, I'm currently 26 and I am from the UK, right in the middle, in the Midlands. Um, I'm currently working with horses, which is my absolute dream job. And I'm also out here advocating for other survivors and doing the best that I can every single day. Yes, you are. And we actually met on Instagram as well, um, just crossed paths during our advocacy work and it's so wonderful to meet and see other people doing such good advocacy work and fighting the good fight for survivors everywhere. So Charlotte, do you mind telling me a bit about um, yourself? What's your background? Where have you been? What you been doing? What have I been doing? Gosh, that we could be here all day just talking about that, to be honest. Um, so originally, I'm from a very much a farming background, um, went to school, did all that, was a very good student. Um, but I hated exams, hated them with a passion. So I went and did what we call um, like lots of BTEC courses, which is basically all coursework. So you don't have exams at the end. And that suited me perfect. And one course that was on there was called Land-Based Studies, um, which then got me into working with animals, the countryside, hedge laying, wildlife, all that kind of thing. And then I went to college and continued that on um, and then worked with um, cows and sheep for quite a few years. Um, And then unfortunately, I had an accident with a cow and ended up breaking my back when I was... 18, 19, I think it was. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. I was paralyzed from the waist down for like three weeks, I think it was. And then finally the feeling came back and I was retaught to walk. Um, oh my word. So, yeah. But that kind of stopped me going back to that kind of work. Um, and then I was kind of lost for a little bit then um, and got into office type work um the first place was working with um lorries so I was in an office but there was people coming in and out all the time so I'm a very sociable person I love 
people. I love talking to people. Um, so that suited well. And then after that, um, a boyfriend of mine at the time um, was moving about. So I kind of had to move with them a little bit. And then I got back into office work, um, which I loved at the time. I was a virtual PA. So um, we did like telephone answering. So we would answer the phones for different businesses. And I was in a healthcare department. So I had people like vets, um, independent animal physios. So I've always had that animal input somewhere in my life. Um, And I also had people like private hospitals, private secretaries, that type of thing. And if they didn't answer the phone, it would come over to me and we would answer the phone as if we were sat in their office and the person on the end of the phone would be none the wiser and yeah that's that's pretty much my backstory that's amazing no return (laughs) yeah well it's so good to get a bit of a background because you can see and you could just by the way that you speak you're very articulate and you're very energetic in the way that you talk so especially that last role like working with on the phones and everything can be quite exhausting but I think when you're busy it's that's the best environment for me as well and you can see that you thrive in a I think that's what it says on my CV. I thrive in a busy, dynamic environment. <laughs> yeah, I just used to love the stress. Uh, stress, if the, if everywhere was busy and you didn't have a second to breathe, then I, that's when I was working at my absolute best. That's me too. And I know it sounds mm. crazy, but with my role, you know, at work now and everything, what I've always done is, yeah, when there's nothing to do, I'll find something to do because I'm yeah. always, otherwise yeah. I'm bored. I think... <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. That is me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. And it's just so good. I mean, when you meet somebody that's an animal person, you just instinctively know that they're going to be a good person. So <laughs> I love it. Um, so you do, you were working in this office for, for a while. Um, and then that's when really your story kind of begins, isn't it? Yes. So um, I've been dating on and off for quite a while um I was for a very long time I was desperate for that security for somebody to be there for me and I've done a lot of work now about you know why those reasons are why I keep wanting to have that security that man and obviously I kept falling for the wrong one and then a friend of mine had um suggested this website which isn't your typical dating website it's basically for married men But she said to me, look, I've been on here before and there are a lot of single older men. And I always go for an older guy because, as you say, I'm very articulate and I just cannot get on with guys my own age. I find them very immature. Mm. So I thought, well, you know, at this point I'm kind of desperate, quotation desperate for a man (laughs) because I'm in that state in my mind. And I go on there and I start chatting with people. Some of them are very, you know, forward. Look, I am married. I've got children. I'm just looking for a bit of fun. Um, and the conversation like goes very sexual very quickly. And I'm kind of like, okay, it's not really what I want. And then this certain guy comes across and seemed very kind, very genuine. Nothing, the conversation never went sexual at all. And it was very different to everybody else. So that kind of like sparked my interest. I was like, oh, okay, this is this is different. Mm. Um, and we spoke a few times on the website. And because he was a very busy guy, he said, look, is there any way that we can put this onto WhatsApp? Because that would be much easier for me. 
So I said, yeah, fine. So we exchanged numbers and we texted a few times through WhatsApp. Again, no red flags whatsoever. He was an absolute gent. And he said, look, I'm in your area um, with work. Would it be possible to meet up for dinner one evening? And I was like, yeah, you know, absolutely. That would be fine. So Mm -hmm. we arranged a place and a time and I was working well, probably about an hour and 15 minutes from where we decided to meet up. So I finished work. Everybody at work knew that I was going on this date and how excited I was. I got ready at work and then I left, went through the office and I was like, oh, good luck, have fun. And off I go and I drive. And um, I had a phone call on the way because I was running a bit late because the traffic is quite horrific on the route that I had to go and I remember him calling me saying look you know I'm, I'm here are you actually coming and I'm like yeah trust me I'm I'm on my way like you know just bear with just me traffic traffic. Bad. <laughs> yeah you know, this is genuine I am coming and he explained where he was in the place where we were meeting so I pull up into the car park and I walk towards these big doors and I walk in and I go to where he says he is and he he is sat there and he's in like a suit and he's like dressed like superb and he was an absolute gentleman he stood up he kissed me on the cheek gave me a hug pulled my chair out for me sat me down put my chair in a gentleman and I said this to everyone you know there was no red flags whatsoever he was an absolute gent Mm -hmm. so we sat and we talked and um, we talked for a while and then we ordered food at our food and it was really busy. They'd got a band in behind us um, who were just playing music and singing. Um, and it wasn't like really loud. It was, um, how, do, how do I explain it? Um, just like mellow type music for the atmosphere, if that makes sense. And there was loads of tables around us. And again, nothing untoward was happening, just having general conversation about our lives, um, his religion, that type of thing. And it got towards the end of the night and I'd got my hand on the table as, as you would just, you know, dressing your hands kind of like round my glass. Yeah. And he went to reach for my hand to hold my hand and my body. If you can imagine being in a situation where you're really uncomfortable, my body went up tight and like the hairs went up everywhere and I felt so uncomfortable and I just kind of like slowly pulled my hand back to myself and you know just like laughing it off trying to change the conversation and I was saying you know I think I'm ready to go home now I'm just gonna pop to the toilet so he said okay I'm gonna go and sort my room out anyway so off I go to the toilet come back get my coat and we walk out and as you walk out the rooms for this specific hotel were outside in kind of like a courtyard type thing so you walk out through the hotel and then you go yep. right into into a courtyard so he and was staying rooms- at like the place that you were eating at we were eating, yep. yeah okay yep, yep. yeah so at this point i am ready to go home i'm ready to say goodbye thank you very much let's go our separate ways what in my mind well, what went through my mind at that point when he asked, do you want to come back to my room? What made me say yes is beyond me. I still don't know to this day why, but I did. And that's something that I will regret for the rest of my life. And that's something that I'm going to have to live with. But I said yes. So we went to the corner of the building for him to go to his car and get his bag. And then we went to the room. We walked in and I didn't really feel uncomfortable. I was kind of... I think I had that thing in the back of my mind, like, what are you doing, Charlotte? Like, why why are you here? You know, you're not 100% comfortable. What, what are you doing? And again, I think it all comes down to that desperation 
of really wanting someone. And um, so we start kissing. It's all very consensual. And we start getting undressed again, very consensual. And we start having intercourse again. At this point, it's consensual from my part. Um, I am in the act with him. I'm consenting. And then he he turns again as quick as a switch. He turns from being just a general guy to being very forceful, very aggressive. And I'm I'm a whoa, like you know, no, like this isn't this isn't right. And he just carries on being really very aggressive. Yeah. And I'm just like you know, okay, well, like back off, like stop now. And he's continuing and continuing. And as most victims, I have no idea how long it went on for before I actually got out. But I just remember saying, you know, I, I want to go home. I want to leave you here. Um, I want to go home. I want to go home. And I just remember repeating it and repeating it, and like trying to get off the bed. And then um, I finally get him off and I, I'm sat on the edge of the bed, like trying to put my clothes back on. And he's still trying to come at me. And I'm like, no, I'm like, stop. I want to go home. Like, I said those words so many times and um, he was still trying to touch me. And I was like, just stop. I was like, I'm going home. So put the clothes on that needed to cover my credentials, basically shoved like my tights, my underwear in my bag, shoved my shoes on. And as I went to go to the door of our room, he stood in front of it and it was locked. And I was like, oh, good God. So I was like, get out of the way. And he was, and all he kept saying to me was, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? I don't understand why you're doing this to me. And oh and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, what? I'm, I'm not doing anything. I just want to go home. And I kept saying, you know, I just want to go home. I want to go home. And again, he kept repeating, why are you doing this to me? You know, why are you doing this to me? And it's like, now I think, God, how dare you have the audacity to even ask me that? Anyway, I had to physically like wrestle him from the door, unlock it. And I just was on a one track mission to get to my car. I walked out of there as quick as I could, got to my car and um, I had to walk past the windows to get to my car. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, like, you know, just don't look, just don't look, just get to your car and got in my car. And there was just no hesitation. I just drove and I drove like 100 mile an hour to get yeah, from there to get and I was room. yeah and I was like Charlotte you absolute idiot I was like why did you do that you know it's all my fault I consented you know and I just went through all those emotions and I got probably about 15 minutes from home so I was probably about 35 minutes from my house from where we were and I got about 15 minutes from home and it hit me like a brick wall like as if I'd hit a brick wall and I was like oh my god I was like I was just raped like it hit me and I'm so lucky that it hit me really like that quickly and I pulled into a lay-by um which was just in front of me and I tried to phone a friend but she didn't answer and I am hysterical at this point absolutely hysterical so I phoned the police we've always been brought up that if somebody does something wrong or if you're ever in trouble you phone the police and you know they'll help you (laughs) help quotation marks um so I phoned the police and I got a, a female officer on the phone, thankfully, and she was lovely in the control room, of course. And I said, look, I said, I, I think I've been raped, you know, as yeah. in complete hysteria. And she said, OK, we'll send an officer to you now. So I explained where I was in the middle of the road on a lay by. 
Um, and she said, do you want me to stay on the phone with you? And I said, yes, please. And she asked me loads of questions, you know, like, well, was he driving? What did he look like? Where was he from? So I said all these things and they sent officers to where we were. And yeah. um, I cannot tell you how many emergency service vehicles drove past me that night. So I would see them coming in the distance. It was like a long straight road and I would see these blue lights coming and I'm like, oh, finally, I am safe. And I would take a deep breath thinking, right, this is it. You know, they're here now. I'm safe. And they would drive straight past. Oh, and I'm just okay. thinking, oh, God, I am not safe yet. And I think about going three to other. Were they going to yeah, other? Yeah, right. other locations, other emergencies. Yeah. Um, and about three went past in the space of like 20 minutes. It's like thinking, a horror movie. Like you must have felt almost invisible. Like, can they see me? Are they looking for me? Or yeah, that must have been just terrifying. Exactly. My heart would like just be sat there in my chest when I see them coming. I'm like, that's it. I'm like, they're coming. And then they drive past and then my stomach, my heart would just drop to my stomach. I'm like, oh no, I'm, I'm not, not safe. And obviously I'm concerned at where the guy is at this point as well, because I don't know whether he's followed me, you know, what's happening there. Um, and then the police officer on the phone says, look, they haven't got enough resources to get somebody to you. Um, they've asked if you can drive to the station. So I said, oh, I said, I don't know where I'm going. And she said, well, I can give you the postcode. They'll be waiting there for you. So I said, oh, okay. So put the phone down, try and like gather myself up, put the postcode in my phone and, and off I drive. And I haven't told anybody at this point. I'm not phoning my parents or anything. And I just drive. And I'm probably about 25 minutes from the police station. Yeah. And it was the most surreal drive. I didn't have any emotion. I didn't have any thoughts. Like it was blank. Everything was just silent, still. Just, it was just so odd. I've never felt that before and I've never felt it since. And then I got to the police station and I didn't know where I was going. There was like loads of roads and a roundabout. It was just really confusing. So I pulled to where I think I should have gone and I was parked in a load of police cars. Now I laugh at this now because I think, oh God, like that really wasn't the place where you were supposed to park. But in that point of just like panic and just fear, I pulled in there and then I kind of walked around a load of buildings and I'd got no idea where I was going. And it's pitch black. It's like half past 10, 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, isn't it? You're at a police station and you should be at the safest place in the world, but I felt very far from the safest place. Yeah. So, yeah, I had to walk down um, a main road and opposite was a pub with, um, it was a Friday evening. So there's obviously lots of drunk people outside, lots of drunk men being rowdy. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to walk past these. And my heart rate's going and the anxiety is just like flying through me. And I then had to turn left onto like a little bit of a side street and it was pitch black. There was no street lamps and there was a long hedge that run along the side with a house, which would have been like an old police station in the UK. They kind of looked like houses. And then after that, I know now is the entrance to the actual police station. And as I was walking towards the entrance to the police station, a man walked out. And oh, the fear that I had. And I ran into the bush of this house and I just hid there quivering because it's pitch black. I don't know who this man is and I'm absolutely petrified. And I end up phoning the police again saying, look, I don't know where I am. I'm lost. You know, I'm supposed to be meeting these police officers and I don't know where I am. I'm petrified. Um, So they explained where I needed to go. And I walked to the door and obviously the door, because it's so late at night, was locked. So I pressed the buzzer, which was behind the door. So... 
I'm stood there at the buzzer, like shaking my head down. I'm not like looking at anything because I don't want to see anyone that's around me. Um, and the door opens and the police officer walks out, but doesn't see me because obviously I'm behind the door. Yeah. And I don't say anything because I'm just in a state of, you know, I'm just despair. Anyway, she then eventually sees me and she's like, oh, oh, okay, come in, come in. So I go into the police station and they sit me in a in a room. Um, now, if I say that the the police side of things is just as bad as the act itself, then I would be under-exaggerating. It, mm. the two, I was fortunate that I had two women police officers. So they sat me in a room and all I wanted to do was get out of the clothes that this guy had just like abused me in. And they just put um, bin bags on the seat that I was sitting on and made me sit on the bin bags. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> you know, logically I think your mind goes, okay, they're trying to preserve evidence and they don't want me to contaminate anything that I'm sitting on, but the indignity in which that is for you as a victim oh is horrific. Yeah. So these two women police officers, you know, they're trying their best, you know, they're trying to be supportive and trying to show me empathy, but trying to do their job at the same time. But when I say trying to do their job, I I roll as I say that. They brought out what would be like an initial rape kit. So like mouth swabs and fingernail clippings, urine samples, those type of things that they want to get mm-hmm. straight away. And the fact that they would open each one up and read the instructions twice before they would actually do them, I was not filled with much confidence at all. Like they, they were- this was the first time they had done it or something? Yeah. It's quite unprofessional. Very unprofessional. So they'd be like with the nail clippings, they were like, okay, so so where do we put them now? Like which which container does it go in? And I'm like, oh God, I'm just thinking, you know. I've not and been in through the future. This no, and in the future, I think as well, the thing that you would be so worried about would be the chain of custody of certain types of evidence. Because if that is ruined, then all of the evidence they've collected would not be able to be used in the court of law if you chose to utilize it. That's Exactly. And that's really disappointing. Point, exactly. At this point, I have no idea where he is. I have no idea whether they will actually ever find because I don't know where he lived. No, I'm not a clue. And I don't know whether if they do find him, whether he's gonna admit to what's happened, whether or not. So this is this is my this is what has happened, or this is gonna be no sorry, we can't use this. Yeah. Um so did that, did the mouth swabs and then went for a urine sample and I was lucky that they had a um, what they call a suet in this country, which is a specially trained officer, basically, mm-hmm. in um, rape and sexual assault. So they brought her over from another station and she sat with me and she was much better. Um, she was so much more sympathetic. She actually showed me the um, the video. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it about the cup of tea. No, I haven't seen it. No, oh, I must send you that. So it's all regarding consent. And it's yes. it's a perfect, perfect um, video for, of all ages, really. Um, so it's basically showing consent regarding cup of tea. So if somebody is awake and you ask them, do they want a cup of tea? And they say, yes, I want a cup of tea. It says, well, make them a cup of tea and give them the cup of tea. If they, um, if you ask them whether they want a cup of tea and they say yes, and you make them the cup of tea, but then they say, no, I don't want the cup of tea anymore. Don't force them the cup of tea. And then it goes on, for example, if the person is then has fallen asleep, 
well, don't try and force the person to drink the cup of tea. And then if someone's drunk or anything like that. So it's all consent, but in something that people can relate with. And she showed me that and she was like, look, you know, what you've done isn't your fault, even though you have consented and then taken that back. She said, you've done nothing wrong. Um, And they took a written statement and it's like three women in the room now. And I'm just obviously like trying to say what has happened. And I'm so ashamed of myself because I've consented in the first place like yeah huge shame and I give them the story and and obviously what's happened and then they said oh we've got to go to a place called the Glade which is a a center for rape and sexual assault um victims where you see the doctor and things like that and they put me in the police car obviously in the back and the two the suet and a normal police officer came with me and at the time I didn't really think much of it but like they just they didn't acknowledge me in the back they just spoke between themselves about life about their life just chatting about police things that they get on in the office and that type of thing mm. and like I look back now and I'm like I'm like that was kind of a little bit insensitive you know I don't I'm sorry but I don't give a shit about your life you know, my life has just been turned upside down. I know you might be trying to keep normality here, but I don't give a shit. Like, I'd rather you just sit there and shut up for the whole journey while I try and process what the hell has just gone on. So we rock up at the Glade and um, knock on the door. And the girl that comes to the door, so I can't think what they're quite called, but you have the main doctor and then you have kind of like a support worker type person that's there. Yeah, and I remember like a, and, like a medical assistant or something, kind of. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I remember her face coming to the door, and I'm like, "Oh my god, I was in high school with this girl. I know this girl, and I oh, just no. God." So this would have been, I was 23 when it happened. So it would have been like five or six years after high school. So we hadn't seen each other since high school, and I wasn't sure whether she'd recognise me, and I, you know, I definitely recognised her. But she was amazing. She like if she did recognize me, well, which I now know now that she did, um, she didn't like make it aware that she recognized me. She put no judgment there at all. She was superb and she made sure that, you know, I was warm, that I had a drink, like all those kind of things. She was amazing. And then the the lady doctor that came in wasn't very nice. She wasn't from the UK and she was just very matter of fact about everything. And um, they obviously made me strip off onto evidence bags and each bit of my, I just remember, it's so vivid. I just remember all of my clothes just going into a separate evidence bag. And, you know, they don't explain to you why. Obviously, you kind of have an idea, but they just don't explain each thing. And then you lie down on a bed and there's like the brightest of lights just being shined and your body is just exposed to everything and everyone and there's obviously cameras and again you're not explained what the heck is going on and she just basically is coming at me saying oh I need to look at this I need to look at that and And then she's obviously examining me internally and she's like "Mm, yes mm, uh, yes there's some bruising him Mm," you know not really talking to me but talking to herself about what's happening and she just gets a camera and starts taking photos and I'm just lying there like you know my voice has pretty much been taken away from me because I'm just that petrified and well, it's re-victimizing you and it's not, you know, that is so indignified. I mean, and the amount of shame, I think an awkwardness, I think most of us women feel even when getting a pap smear. Yeah. Um, it's, 
that's really horrific and you would at least hope that your doctor would say, no, I'm going to do this because of this. Um, yeah. Are you ready? And now I'm going yeah. to do this because they do that when they do a pap smear, don't they? You know, they're going to, I'm yeah, going to insert they- this now. I'm going mm-hmm. to do a swab now. And they tell you that step by step. And Nothing. for her to not do that is so, must have been so traumatizing, not knowing what was going to happen to your body. Yeah. Exactly. And the two police officers, the other side of the curtain, are still chatting about daily life. They're still like chatting about their own thing. And um, I remember her finishing up, switching all the lights off and saying, okay, you're done now. And I'm like, okay, like I'm standing here stark naked. Like, what do I do? And I remember the police officer putting her arm through the curtain with these grey jumper and um, trousers. And I looked at them and she said, oh, the bathroom's over there. So I go into the bathroom. She said, there's a shower there if you want one. So I'm like, right, okay. And I walk in and I, I literally pick these garments up and I'm like, this is what they put criminals in. When they think in criminal clothing, this is what they put them in. Grey jumper and grey tracky bottoms. So I put them on. They're hanging off me because obviously not for women. They're obviously really large men's sizes. And and there's a mirror in this bathroom and I'm just looking at myself like. And I'm just silent. And I'm probably in that bathroom for a good 20 minutes. I haven't had a shower because I just want to get home. And I'm just looking at myself like, oh, like Charlotte is gone. Like I am just a shell in this mirror. And you were so just treated like an abs- you were just treated like a vessel. You were just defiled by um a predator. You were just ignored as if you they had a job to do but you weren't really cared for. And then you were just re-victimized by a doctor. It's almost like not not one person sat there and held your hand and told you everything was going to be okay. That's no, just nothing. That's so yeah. disappointing because they could do it really fucks me off because they could do so much better and it doesn't take, it's not that fucking hard. And that was the same in my case. I just remember being in the police station and I just had a bra on and I was freezing. I remember laying in the back of the police car on the way there and they were doing the same thing. They were just chit-chatting between themselves. These are socket detectives. It's the same kind of thing. I think they're sexual offenses yeah. and child abuse investigation team inspectors or detectives. And I was just in the back of this car, freezing cold, and that's when the first time I ever heard the song Big Girls Cry by Fergie. Oh, yes, and, I know which one you mean. And for, for years, and it wasn't until last year that I ever listened to that song again because it was one of the biggest triggers I ever had to overcome yeah. in my life. But every time I thought of that, I felt freezing cold and just naked because I had trackies on and a bra, and I remember walking through I think it was a hospital or something without a top on, like without a shirt on. Like I wasn't properly clad. I think my dad might have given me his shirt at some point or something, but it's like between me getting to the police station, having these exam done the same that you had, the urine sample and everything like that, someone could have bought, like the police officers are in uniform. Did they yeah. have unif- did they have a top of their own that they wanted to hand over to? I was 14 as well. Like it's just I know that things have changed now and or they're getting better, but these are things that really fuck me off because you could really change somebody's life easily by just doing your job well. Not just by doing mm-hmm. your job, but by doing it well. And it fucks me off that this is the impact that you've had after one of the most traumatic nights of your life and you've just been re-traumatised by professionals. 
Exactly. And it's just, as I said, like that was just the worst, the worst bit ever. And I don't really remember what happened after that. I know we went back to the police station and they'd said, at some point I'd got them to ring my mum because she was obviously expecting me home. And I'd said to them, tell her what's happened, but don't tell her what's happened. If you know what I mean, just tell them, just tell her the outline. I said, and can you ask her when I get home not to ask any questions? Because I know what my mum's like. She wants to know every single detail. And I said, don't get her to ask any questions. So I rock, You want to be left home. alone. Yeah. So I rock up home at like six o'clock in the morning um, in my prisoner gear, as I like to call it. And mum's obviously there waiting at the door for me. She's been up all night since she obviously got the phone call. And she kind of looks at me and I give her that glance stare of don't say anything. <laughs> just I literally like glared at her and I think she picked up straight away it was like okay I'm backing off so went upstairs went for a shower the longest shower of my life um but I kind of felt comfortable there I felt at home I felt safe it's my house I, I feel safe, which is ironic when a lot of people don't um and I went back downstairs and I had a cup of tea with my mum and I just sat there and my mum just felt awkward because she wanted to know what had happened. She wanted to give me a hug. She wanted to do what mum things mum people do, but she didn't know whether that was the right thing to do. Um, And I had a phone call to say that I needed to be back at the police station for a video interview at two o'clock that day. So I got home at six and at two, they wanted me to be back. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go to bed and try and get some sleep. So I think I got like 30 minutes or something. So I got had to get back up, get back dressed, go over to the police station for the video interview. And again, two female officers were, you know, very good. And we went through my story again. Um, and then after that, they said, look, you know, we just need to give you a, some advice that, you know, we don't know who this guy is, but we have got him. He pretty much got home by the time... By the time the police had got to where we were, he'd already left and they picked his car up on ANPR and basically followed him home, picked him up at home. Um, At this point, they find out he has a wife and she sat at home with him. And um, they said, look, because we don't know his background, we don't know anything about him. We really think that it would be wise for you to go to obviously a, a sexual clinic, go and obviously have all the tests and things. So, that afternoon after I'd been there, I just went straight to our sexual clinic and they I explained obviously what happened. But that was just horrific. I'd said to the person at the desk, obviously there's lots of youngsters there, old, young, of various sorts. And I like looked into the screen and I said, look, I've been raped and I need, you know, thing. And she was like, okay, just go and sit in the waiting room. And I'm, I'm just like, are you joking me? And my heart was in my mouth, like just sitting there with all these other men and women. And I'm just sat there like a quivering wreck. Um, anyway, I go into the doctor and he said, OK, look, I think we need to put you on HIV medication because we don't know what this guy is. And you need hepatitis A and hepatitis B injections. Yeah. So the he said the HIV medication is going to make you very poorly. It's going to give you like make you feel very sick and that lasted for five days so like this thing is just being prolonged and then the hepatitis a and a hepatitis b injections you have to have the initial one then in three months then in six months then in 12 months so it's just, just every time i have to go and have this done it's just bringing it all up again i'm like i'm having this done because of you yeah um 
So I had to do that. And then when I got home, I then rang my work or I got my mum to ring my work because I knew that they were open on the Saturday and just say, look, this is what's happened. I want to come back to work on Monday because we've been taught as children that anything bad happens, anything like that. You brush it under the carpet and you get on with it. Like we, my parents are very like, grit your teeth and get on with it. So that was just the mentality that I went straight into. So did that and they were like, okay, you know, we'll understand. We'll have a chat on Monday. So the police at this point had said to me, you know, you're probably not going to hear an awful lot from us for a while, but we'll try and keep in contact. So went back to work on the Monday, drove there. And at this point, I pretty much had brushed everything under the carpet. Like, you know, over the Sunday, my mind was blank. I wasn't really thinking about it too much. Went to work on the Monday for like nine o'clock and the big foyer was full of people. Now, these people didn't know what had happened to me. They hadn't got a clue. But my words, I think they did. I thought all eyes were on me as I walked into that entrance hall. And I just remember, like, the I didn't know what it was at the point because I'd never had it before. But now I know it's anxiety just, like, just overwhelms me. And I ran to my desk and I just, like, buried my head in the desk thinking, oh, God's sake, like, you know, what's going on? You know, I've never had this feeling before, but I don't feel great. And then my team leader came in and I said to her, you know, can we have a chat? And I explained to her again what had happened. And she was like, oh, my God, you know, I'm so sorry. So we went down to the HR department and... I'd kept in contact with them a lot. You know, whenever I was having a bad day, I would say to them, you know, look, I'm not feeling great. Can I just have five minutes logged out? And they were very keen on you being logged in unless you were on your break. And they would obviously monitor how much you were logged in. And obviously, like I said um, earlier, I thrive off stress. So when it was busy, normally I would be like, that is my go point. And I would go back and forward and keep them updated. And if anything came from the police, I would go and tell them. Like, I was very good at keeping them informed. And I worked solidly for six months. Six months I worked solidly. Um, And I hadn't really heard much from the police at this point. So in this six-month period, I've kind of brushed it under the carpet. We were all okay. Everything's absolutely fine, hunky-dory. And towards the September, as it happened in March, towards the September, I just wasn't coping. I didn't want to get out of bed. Every time the phones would ring nonstop, I would go into full on meltdown panic mode. And I just was not coping with stress at all. And I was having days off. So I was having like a day off here when I wasn't feeling great, a day off there. But I would still go in on the days that I felt good. Or I would go in for the morning and then feel crappy and have to go home because I'm just not coping. And I kept the HR department very aware of all of this. And then... Our company had a Bradford factor, which is basically where points are. You're given points for the days off that you have. So if you have, for example, five consecutive days off in a row, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that is less points than if you have Tuesday off this week, Wednesday off next week, that type of system. It's very stupid. Um, And because I was having the odd day off. (laughs) It's just the dumbest thing. (laughs) But for my situation, it was I can understand, obviously, in a normal situation where you might have the person that's having every Tuesday off, which becomes a bit, you know, suspicious. Weird. Yeah. Or every Monday or something. Yeah. When my case was completely different that the HR department were fully aware of. But because I had worked six months okay, they thought, well, you're just taking the piss now, Charlotte. So the points kept piling up, piling up, and then you get verbal warning 
Then you get a written warning as the points are getting higher in the scheme. scheme. And then after that, you get dismissal. You get sacked. So at this point that I've been given the written warning, obviously, like, I am not coping with life at all. Like, life is just not going my way because I've brushed it under the carpet and I'm just not coping. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, if I have any more days off, I'm going to get sacked. Like, I love my job, but I'm going to get sacked. And, like, I'm fully aware that when you have a sack on your record, you know, when you're dismissed and you've got that on your record, you're it's not going to look good for your next job. Yeah. So I go Especially back to my Especially if they dad. call for a reference or something and they go, she exactly. never came in or something. That doesn't mm. look good on you, yeah. No. So I go back to my desk and I'm just like, do you know what? I can't do this anymore. I just can't. And I go leave my desk and I go out to my car and I phone my doctors at this point and I'm like I'm not coping like this they know what's happened obviously because I've had to go there for my hepatitis vaccines and things and um they're like okay we can put you on a sick note and he asked me the doctor was very good he said to me look you know what are you going to do after this 30 days because he's obviously aware that this isn't going to be fixed in 30 days and I I don't know and I said I said can my sick note cover leave if I decide to quit and he said yes it will so I said right okay that's what I'm doing so I walked straight back into the HR department and the HR department had big glass windows it was a brand new building that they'd had built and it had big glass windows over their doors but not over their doors but like it was all glass basically and you had big glass doors and their like offices were behind these glass doors why do people do this the place that you're going to go and have very private conversations let's make it completely see-through and in the center of the office why do they do that so in the beginning obviously when I'm telling them about it and I'm crying my eyes out everybody in this office block that goes back can see but then the thing is you then got to walk out through all these people (laughs) you know red face nose Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's just so fucking badly designed. It's, it's always designed by white fucking men who have been taught their entire lives not to have emotions. They're going, oh, it's fine because HR problems are only to do with nothing serious. There's never going to be a crier here. Oh, my no. God, what the fuck? That is just. And, you know, if I think back now in the whole building, and the building was bloody huge and it was purpose-built for thing, and there is not a private room. There is not a room that doesn't have big glass doors and like floor to ceiling glass windows. There's not a other there's not the, one. Other than the bathroom. That'd be other you're in the, the safe place you've got to go. Or where they come oh my for lunch. God. Yeah. It it was I look back now and it was ridiculous. So I basically waltzed in there and I said, Look, I quit. I'm getting a sick note from my doctor. I'll post it to you. Yeah. And they were like, Oh, okay, you know, we understand. And that was it. And off off I go. So that was it. Done. And at the time I was with a boyfriend who I'd got with very quickly after the rape because I was looking for that superhuman that was going to protect me and save me. And I thought all was roses. He had his own his own house and he had his own business. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. Yes. And he took me under his wing and he was like, I'll protect you. And I was all safe, but it was not that at all. And yeah, yeah. I lived with him at the time and our um landlord and lady had horses and this is how I then got into the horse world that they came to the house one day and said god you know we're looking for someone to help with the horses you know I need help and I was like oh okay that's me so that's how I got into the horse world but I have held a serious grudge over my previous employers for treating me so badly and this is where my bloody passion for making sure in the future and I'm doing stuff now to obviously create something to help employers but if anybody comes forward as a victim to them but they bloody well know how it all works and how to give them support um I'm waiting for COVID to be over because they're they are huge advocates and I've seen it I've had to block them on social media so I don't see it because it was basically triggering me um of them being awarded for like the best employers treating their employees the best and this type of thing and I'm like no, that's not the case behind the scenes. And no. I obviously know that the directors and the CEOs won't have a clue who I am or what's gone on. Yeah. And the one owner of the business, um, she's a female and she has her own charity, which helps young girls who have been in situations like I have come up through the ranks and get jobs and get houses and things like that. So I'm waiting for COVID to be over so that I can arrange a meeting and go and sit with her and say, Look, not to not to be angry at her or to come at her in an attacking way, but just saying, look, you're advocating this for young women, but this is how I was treated in your own company. I'm not here to be attacking. I'm here to help you. From a victim's yeah. point of view, I want you to know what I needed at that and point. And I think the hard thing as well is, yeah, they need to know, they need that feedback, but also as well, Usually the people that have thought up this environment, their social enterprises or their employment programs are not the people, the people who have the passion for it and creating it 
they're not the people actually on the floor doing the work. So she probably would be horrified to hear that you weren't placed into better care, that you weren't taken care of. But other people there are working for a pay and a salary and might not be advocates for what she's advocating for, which is terrifying, Mm -hmm. you know, working for -for not-for-profits and stuff. And, you know, I work at the moment and I work with a lot of people with disability and, and there are a lot of people there as well that just don't get it or care sometimes. And you go, this is just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I but I get it. And I think, I think you bring up so many good points and, and I really resonate with a lot of those feelings. Like I got with my boyfriend directly after when I was 14, like my first ever boyfriend. And I just clung onto him like mm. for dear life. I think I just needed somebody to give me life back and to give me a feeling of purpose for a while. Yeah. And it took me a long time and it was only probably until about two years ago. I've been in like quite a lot of long-term relationships and until I decided, no, like I need to work on myself and I walked away and I haven't been in a relationship for about two and a half years now, mm-hmm. it took that long, long kind of for me to realise that I was worthy on my own. Yeah, and well, it- the guy that I got with after the being raped, as I said, in that moment I needed him. But in hindsight, it should have been a six-month thing to get me back on my feet and I should have left. But because I moved in very quickly and then obviously got this job with our landlord and lady, I got trapped. I got very trapped and it was not physically abusive, but ridiculously mentally abusive. And at the time, I didn't see it and as everybody does. But I look back now and I think, oh my God, Charlotte, like you went through the bloody mill. And then the saving grace obviously then happened that I got the job that I'm currently in now, which had a house with it. So that was my complete escape route. But he was there obviously through court with me and things. And mum came as well. We, he was, he was charged. My rapist was charged and we went to court. Um, He was found not guilty due to there not being enough evidence, but he was, they were, the jury was told by the judge to come back with that verdict basically so the jury didn't go away and come back not guilty the judge advised the jury I think that you should come back not guilty because there isn't enough evidence here which is bloody ridiculous because well what the fuck is the point in having a jury yeah he admitted to having sex with me you see so all of the DNA evidence was wiped out did he um admit to standing in front of the door and not letting you leave the place I have period no idea. of time because that, I don't know what he said that by the very nature of it is kidnapping Ref- having somebody or refusing f- to allow somebody to leave a premise and having a locked door behind them that's kidnapping yeah. and that would be the easier charge not the easier but a charge that I think would be chargeable as a chargeable offense yeah. because we know that the consent was removed so DNA evidence will be there we're assuming that it will be yeah but that's really disappointing, but how how do you feel after all of that, having gone through it and having at least gone through the court system? What what do you feel now looking back? Um, I have no regrets about going through charge like getting him charged and going through court. Although it was horrific, absolutely, and I'm not even gonna like 
paint roses around it. It was awful. He had a female barrister who was a witch. I realise she's doing her job, but my God, what a vile piece of work she really was. And the whole justice system is crap in the fact that we have to prove that he's guilty, not they have to prove that he's innocent. So my whole life was pulled up. Now, I'm not even going to beat around the bush. I've had a spicy past. Like I've, you know, I in terms of like sexual conversations and things like that and dates and stuff it was spicy i'm not even gonna like paint around it, it was, like, <laughs> I thought that's spicy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but you've um, got every right as a person to do that but my god did that get pulled up now my jury was oh god, it was probably 70 percent men mm-hmm. and 30% women and they were 90% were over 45 So when we are talking, when they're bringing up my past and we're talking about sex toys, sex positions, all these things, like I can just see this jury's eyes just go, well, she's, she's a bit of a slag. You know, you can just see, you can see it in them. And what does that have to do with whether or not he assaulted you? Whether, like, I don't understand. And this is where I'm shocked that the burden of proof is as hard as it is for victims because your character in terms of potentially lying, maybe if you've had previous offenses and lied, if you've had that, I think maybe potentially could be brought in, but your sexual history should not change. Whether you're a virgin or whether you've got kinks, neither of those should change the fact that somebody might or might not be found guilty for raping you. Yeah, I don't absolutely. understand where what that has to do with what you went through. It has nothing to do with what you went through. Yeah, but the whole fact that they pull apart my social media, my previous messages, the full works, but they don't do that to him. Yeah. And I remember on our date, and I told the police this, that he said to me that he'd taken a girl out on a date and got her blind drunk in Liverpool and that they had to... Um, he had to take her to a hotel room for him to sober her up before he took her home. At the time, like, obviously nothing had happened to me at this point, so I'm just thinking, oh, my God, you know, what a silly girl. But now I think, oh, my God, what if what if this what poor girl has been... Well, that's it. So I told the police this. So, you know, they didn't do anything about it. And they don't go through his social media. They don't go through all of his messages. So his they character... Have- being on this side that is for people who has a wife while he's cheating on her his character is not assassinated but yours is as the victim and that is just part and parcel and this is where gender equality is fucked you know and I hear it so often with you know a single dad oh and you know you picture a single dad in your mind and and if they've got the kids oh you know they're doing such a good job as a parent and yeah. then you think of a single mum and she's just a fucking slut or something who couldn't make her marriage work because yeah, what? And it's there's just a disparity between genders yeah. that – and how are we going to get more people to come forward about their assaults if this is the character assassination that goes part and parcel with it? There is so much education that needs to happen within the – within the police, the justice system, the CPS, because I remember one thing that my my saving grace, and I am so grateful for my CID officer, Darren Holmes, he was, oh my God, I could praise that man. For, what officer? What is it called? A CID. So they're like oh, a crime case. investigation detective. Okay. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, something like that. But he's the man that basically took on my case and was the one that did all of the investigation. And I had to go back and forwards to the police all the time. But he was incredible. Like, we obviously um, hear a lot of people being treated badly by the police. Now, I did in the in- first instance, but when I was given Darren as the main, like, case officer, he was incredible. I remember him phoning me one day and giving me some really bad news. And um, I cried my eyes out and I was like um, hyperventilating on the phone. And I was like, I'll be okay. I'll be okay like this and put the phone down. Bless his heart. He rang me back in 10 minutes to make sure I was okay. Like, oh, he was, I love him. Like he was amazing. He was so Just to, cat, you know, give her some time to kind of like collect herself and I'll call her back and make sure she's okay. Yeah. He was yeah. just awesome. Um and yeah, he was, he was a savior that obviously, like, I know a lot of people don't have. So that's a good story. And one said that the police did, did work for me in that sense. But I remember him saying to me one day, which really triggered me was, um, you know, the CPS have decided that we're going to charge him and we will go to court. And a bit further later on, he was like, yeah. And, and you're, you're going to make a, uh, what did he say? He said something like, you're going to make a fantastic witness or you're going to make, um, a good, witness or something like that and I was like what like I didn't I didn't choose I'm not acting it was something like that it's something that triggered me to think like I'm not acting here like and I think what he means is as well you're articulate you're young and I I we need to say this but you're white and English is your first language and we don't often think about the barriers for people who have English as a second language or who did come to Australia as a refugee or the UK in your circumstance Mm. or who migrated. But could you imagine having your character assassinated and you need the assistance of a translator or having gone through that and maybe not understanding what's going on or responding in broken English, how much to a jury that might destroy your credibility, perceived credibility? credibility yeah (laughs) that's that's scary so for you to be a a good witness and I think that as well so they're they're things that I think about often you're not a sex worker you're not somebody who you're somebody who is innocent but once they dug into your background they tried to make you not innocent and we see it so often with people who were murdered and they're just, they call some people innocent victims and then they call some of them, you know, or they don't even report on them because um, whatever, she was a sex worker potentially or something and therefore she deserved it. What? Yeah. I know, exactly. But I think in my case as well, I think what went in his favour um, was that he was, he had an impeccable job in the medical industry. So he, his character, going back to character, you know, looks wonderful because, you know, he's this person who's in a very high up job. But I would Um, argue that that's the opposite because having a very good education, having a very well paid job, having a very good standing job and position, you're educated enough to know exactly what is right and what is wrong. And yeah. I believe that that is more of an instruction. Having somebody in a position like that is more of an instruction about the terrifying thing that they've done because he's had to make a calculated decision. And if I get caught, you know, this is what could potentially be impacted in my career. I could lose my license. I could lose this. I could lose that. And for that to be 
something that makes him better. Like that, yeah. that actually, I believe, is the complete opposite. It's more instructive of how yeah. premeditated it was and how vile of a person he truly is. Absolutely. But what gets me with our justice system is the fact that he was charged by the CPS. So you are being charged under investigation that, you know, that you are a rapist. Yeah, he doesn't have to tell his workplace that. His workplace don't have to know until he has physically been found guilty. That I, baffles me. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think it goes back. We're having this discussion at the moment in Australia because um, Christian Porter, who is the Attorney General, I believe, has had an allegation made against him. And now every man in the world is up in arms about their jobs potentially being lost because or having to step down when an allegation is made. And there is part of that that I agree with. But I do also think that you need to wait the, for the court and everything to go through. I think that, that needs to be done. And one thing that I yeah. think needs to be highlighted as well is that being found not guilty does not mean you're not guilty. Yeah, being found not guilty means that there's not been potentially enough burden of proof proven in the eyes of the law or in the eyes of the jury and, in your case, the eyes of the fucking judge. What the yeah. fuck? Is, I'm sorry, but what the fuck is the point in having a jury there? Like, what the fucking fuck is the point in that? I know. Sorry, I'm swearing so much, but what? No. A but it's funny joke. You because at, when I remember the phone call coming through from Darren, my CID officer, saying, look, Charlotte, he's been found not guilty, but he was, the jury was told by the judge to come back not guilty. And at that very moment in time, I just had to go, okay, you were found not guilty because there wasn't enough evidence. You weren't found guilty because it didn't happen. And that's how I've had to process it is, you know, there just wasn't enough evidence and that that's such a you, were found, yeah. you were found not guilty, but mm. you weren't found not innocent. innocent. Yeah, you that's were found innocent, to... you were found not guilty. Yeah. yeah. That's and great. then it's like, yeah. in terms of the jury now, like I have, every now and again, it will come into my brain as all these things do. It's like one I wonder if the jury still speak about it because I hear obviously other people that have been on a jury service who have done like murders or, you know, horrible things like that. And they still talk about it to this day. And I'm like, is my story being talked about by 12 jurors? And I also, the other question is like, I wonder what they thought. Yeah. Like, although it is doesn't they... matter whether they thought if he was guilty or not guilty, because I know when he bloody well knows that he was guilty, but what, like, what, what do they think? Like, it, and as you said, like, yeah. would it be different if they'd have actually yeah. been able to have their own opinion? Definitely. And I think, yeah, it's it's something that's interesting to think about, but you don't want to get into a spiral thinking about it as well. Too much, um, I yeah. Just, yeah. I just pulled something up on my phone. It's a um, it's an audio book that I've been listening to, and I, I brought it up because I want to go back to a point that you made at the start of your story, mm-hmm. which was, you you left and you were leaving and then you don't know what made you when he asked you to go back to his room what made you say yes and i have i have this thing i think that as women we've been brought up to be pleasers and you know even when somebody asks so uh, just on this last friday like a few days ago for me a guy asked for my number and he was nice and i just said look i'm sorry i don't get my number out um if you want you can follow me on social media i feel like that makes me feel a little bit safer like a little bit more distanced and yeah. for me the reason that i say that is because it's a nicer letdown like you don't want to just say no sorry i'm not interested or anything yeah. we're taught 
very much from a young age to be polite. And I think we've all had it as well when you've said no to somebody and they've called you a slut or a whore or something. So there's also a fear that you're going to get yelled at. And mm-hmm. I think a politeness in you probably came through where he's offered you and you go, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I think that that's an underlying unconscious thing that we have to try and be polite. But the audio yeah. book that I brought up goes back as well to that moment that he touched you and you had that disgusting feel. And it's called yeah. The Gift of Fear, um, Survival Signals Survival Signals by Gavin DeBecker. And, man, there are parts in this book that I don't agree with. Um, yeah. But a lot of the premise of it is trusting your gut and trusting your instincts and knowing what danger means to you and trusting, you know, all of the nerves that are inside your stomach and body. Because often I think we have these instincts that come across us and we talk ourselves out of them because for one reason or another, um, you know, we've been scared in the dark, but that guy walking towards us, we're definitely terrified of him. We can't get away from him. But every other time I haven't been attacked maybe. Mm. So I think they're those things that maybe we go through in our minds to override the senses that we're feeling. So I always tell people to trust their gut. That's something I really strongly believe. And that's not to put blame on you in any sense. Like you did nothing wrong. No. You were raped by somebody who was a fucking predator, is a fucking predator. And yeah. But I think it's interesting as well. Always try to listen to it and it's hard to listen to it because you might not have any other signs that this person might be bad you might have all of the signs in the world that this person's good but if you feel a physical push back from somebody I think that's something worth listening to well it Um, goes back to how we're brought up again in the whole polite thing doesn't it in the sense that you know we're taught as young girls that you need a gentleman well, he acted mm-hmm. nothing but a gentleman the whole night. So even though I had all those things when he touched my hand of, whoa, like this feels very uncomfortable. But because he was a gentleman for the whole night, there's nothing wrong. Like this is yeah. the guy that should be the one because that's how I've been brought up to perceive gentlemen. Yeah, definitely. And I think it just, you bring up so many good points because I think as well, and um, it's a, a point to take in discussions with the world and having it as it is, um, for me, the date, oh, the date is the same for you there, right? Different. Yeah, so we, what is the date? The 14th, uh, the 14th of Sunday, of the 14th of March. Um, Sunday, the 14th of March, 2021, um, with the murder and abduction of Sarah Everard a few days ago. People think that predators look like predators. People think that a predator is a monster, um, a scary person that's going to jump out of the bushes that has a mustache, um, looks disheveled, smells, is wearing a trench coat, you know, what is depicted in movies of monsters. And what we need to understand is that people that look like normal people are the monsters. Like you, one in 10 people don't look like a rapist. And it's really important that we trust these things because the really, really, really good looking guy can still be an, a perpetrator. And that's something I think that also overrides our instincts in a way where you go, but he doesn't seem like he could be. He's such a good-looking guy. And you go, their looks have nothing to do with what their intentions are. Yeah, exactly. And, again, I think after, funny enough, after um, I was raped, it was all over the telly, as in, like, our soaps and things. So we obviously in the UK, we have Emmerdale, which is like a soap that's on every single night, 
there was a lady on there who um, had been raped and they were following her story. And there was, um, a, some, was it called The Bay? Something like that. And there was a woman on there who'd been raped and they were obviously perceiving it on there. And I'm like, but that's not how it is. And then they would show to me. I'm like, that's not how it is. And I just very clearly remember there thinking, God, everybody's perceptions of what happens and how you should feel and all these kind of things is shown to us completely differently on TV. And the same with like um, the perpetrator, how it's shown on TV is not how it actually is in real life. And I think that's so such a good point because it's so true. Everyone thinks that it's down this dark alley at night and you're screaming and everything and, you know, you've got all of your um, responses that you have. You've got fight, flight, freeze, and you've also got fawn. And that Mm -hmm. is a response to be compliant in a system that you, in a situation that you feel unsafe in, in order to survive. And I think the only thing that we see is fight. And for you to ever be in a situation and you did do that that night as well which is horrific but all we ever see is the dark alley at night and then for some reason she's always victim blamed in some way on some soap opera or some show um yeah there's always at least a discussion about it and it's just horrific I think to turn around and to only see that because it gives the public an impression that if you have consented in your situation and gone gone through what you've gone through that for some reason that's not as bad or that that's not valid. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing when people yeah. have been frozen or people have fawned and, and done all of those things. When your response is anything but fight, I don't think the public understands that that is still rape. Yeah, and that's why I'm so keen to get my story out there because because I consented first and then I pulled that consent away. It's not the typical get dragged down the alley that people perceive so I think it's really important that I share my story and you know like you say people who haven't fought and they have you know fawned or froze we need to get those stories out there as well because like for people who have consented first and then thought oh my god no like I'm sure that there are probably so many out there that haven't reported because they think oh well I I consented first so he's done nothing wrong and that's not the case at all. Yeah, I know at least four of them, and these are people that I know and are friends with that mm-hmm. have gone through that, and that is nothing short of horrific. And, yeah. you know, I don't think that everybody has to um, go through and press charges, but I really commend you for doing that. It's so incredibly mm-hmm. well done of you and strong of you, and you can look back and be so proud of of making sure that you did that for yourself. And I think even... What I always say to people, especially if they've just gone through a sexual assault, is to please go to the police mm-hmm. and just try and get that kit done. Just yeah. so that even if you choose not to press charges, you do have that evidentiary um, backup if you do choose to change your mind at any stage. And Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so we, I don't know whether it's the same elsewhere, but we actually have specific centres in the UK where you don't have to get the police involved. You can go, they'll take all the evidence and they'll take a statement if you want and they will keep it there until you are ready to go. And they're called the Glade um, and rape crisis and things like that can put you in touch with them. But going to court, there's two reasons that I wanted to go and follow it through to the end and a lot of people i.e my parents and grandparents were like you know you can pull out you know you can pull out if you want to the first was because I couldn't live the rest of my life thinking what if I had have gone to court 
I couldn't live my life thinking what if for the rest of the life for the rest of my life and the second reason is even though he was found not guilty and of course if he rapes again my case won't be able to come into it unless he's found guilty so there's always an option that I may get a little bit of justice if he's found guilty for another case as I said he won't it won't be allowed to be brought up in the instance but if he's found guilty then he might be able well, to bring depending on depending on what he does it could be as a um as a history and a background and I think yeah what you've done could potentially be the saving grace for another victim in the future um if he does do it again and I really hope that he doesn't um but I think what you've done is incredible and regardless of people who who choose to convict and people who choose not to convict um we're both on the same side um but I am I really commend you for doing that I think it's such a fucking wonderful job and I understand how hard it is um I think we should link the Glade service and I'll link in the socket um information which is the same here now I they are police officers but they have they're co-located um, in multidisciplinary centres. Um, some of them are. Oh, okay. um, so I'm not sure whether you can not make a police statement, but I know that you don't have to actually. They're, they're non-uniformed. Yeah, they're not uniformed police officers. A lot of them are co-located at different areas and, and you're, they're in the same building as, you know, the doctors and everything that you would work with, counsellors, things yeah. like that. So what Socket has become from when I went through the system, I think is much better. Um, and they've done a lot to listen to um, survivors' voices and everything to incorporate that in practice. So we can link all of those in the show notes for this episode. Yeah. Um, but one thing I always want people to talk about, and we did speak about it before we got on, was was how you've gone about getting your life, you know, becoming who you are today. And you're a very intelligent woman and you're, and you're very confident and and you're moving forward your life and you're moving on and you've come into the advocacy space as well what was it like for you getting there and what do what have you found helpful what would you recommend for people going through this now um so I tried all the traditional forms of counseling after court because obviously you're not allowed um until after you've obviously gone through the whole procedure and in that moment I told the counsellor what she wanted to hear. So it didn't work for me because I didn't, I wasn't in that right moment ready to talk about how yep. I was feeling. And I, I told her. What to yeah. So I had like six to eight sessions of telling her what she needed to hear for her to sign me off, which was ridiculous, but that happened. And I had to express myself in a way that was really true to me and find that love and passion for life again. And that was through the animals. And I I always had this sense straight after um, court and things that I needed to do something with my story to make it better and to make good of the bad situation that had happened to me. And I tried to start a kind of a support group, but unfortunately... My rapist found out about it and tried to stalk me and then had the audacity to report me to the police because he was worried I was saying his name and things. But I've always said, you know, well, luckily for you, I know your rights and I would always respect those like you. So I very quickly like shut all that down and was not ready to do that. So there's always been advocacy there in the back of my mind that I needed to do, but it just wasn't the right time. So I really plowed into my animals. Um, I have a dog who 
saved my life. Um, as Maddie said, we said at the beginning that I had purpose to get up every morning when I really didn't want to because I had the dog and the horses are amazing listeners. You can cry into their necks, you can give them a cuddle. They're so empathetic with you Um, and I would really urge anyone that is struggling to find that purpose or to find reasons to get up every day is to try your hand at anything animal so whether that's volunteering at a dog shelter or an animal rescue center because you'll find that you'll build up a relationship with the animal and we can trust animals you know then they are the most loyal things on the planet you know they're not going to hurt you and you will find that you will get purpose because you need to go and you need to care for that animal and they are going to depend on you. And that gives you such a purpose every single morning to get up and out of bed. And heavens, you can't go into a cute puppy and be crying or sad because as soon as you see them, they just light you up. So I urge anyone to at least give it a try once. If it's not for you, then that is okay. And you will find your purpose and you will find what is right for you. Um, But just try it once because who doesn't like (laughs) cuddling puppies? (laughs) I'm exactly the same. And, you know, I've, I've come on this journey for a long time and I've always had dogs. And then when I moved out, I was having a hard time and um, my mental health wasn't the best. And for the past few years, I've been in a really good state. And I think one of those reasons is because I got my dog, Archie. And yeah, those days where it felt like I didn't want to get out of bed or anything, I had to get up and walk him. He's a border collie as well. So he needs to be walked. Um, yeah, but he was also, you know, I'd cry or something and he would help me. And it gave me something to look after, which gave me purpose in a sense for those days that I was down the worst. And now as well, when you walk with them or when you've got them, it's kind of like a sense of pride as well um, that it gave me. And it, I know that it's helped a lot of other survivors and I wouldn't say just go and get an animal to fix everything. It definitely won't. Yeah. They are no. hard. <laughs> but those <laughs> days when it's really bad, I mean, he's made me cry, but <laughs> there's, yeah. there's a lot good about them. And I think, yeah, we were just saying before as well, and I think it's worth saying again, that things for trauma and for recovery from different things might not work for each and every individual. But I do think for me specifically, that would be like working with horses would be wonderful. I love animals as well. Um, But I find long, long walks, um, listening to, I know it's crazy, but I am a big crime junkie and I listen to um, murder podcasts, documentaries, um, books. I just finished I'll Be Gone in the Dark, um, which was really wonderful. And you know, they were, that was how I got out and meditated and, and got the shit out of my mind. I got to get my mind off what I was going through for some point in time. And that's what I felt really therapeutic. Yeah. And other people, well, you know, do different things, but I think that's, yeah. It, exactly that. And two points to that is you're not going to know what's right for you unless you try it. And two, whatever it is that we are doing, whether it's me spending time with the horses, whether it's you walking, whether it's, her meditating or him doing affirmations we whatever it is we are all trying to get to the same point we're all trying to get that inner calm that inner just freeness it doesn't matter what we're doing we're all trying to do the same thing so you just need to try and try everything to find what works for you and not be ashamed of oh I've tried that and it didn't work for me you know everybody you know you might see on social media oh everybody's saying meditate 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 but if you're the type of person that can't sit there in the calm like just sit there in the peace and the quiet and you you fidget and it's just not for you but 
walking in the open air and breathing in the fresh air, taking in the countryside or the beach or whatever it is that you live, that still might get you to the same place as sitting quietly in a quiet room. As long as you get to that place, it doesn't matter what you're doing. That's exactly right. And I think it just highlights that there are so many different paths that you can take to get to where a lot of us are now. And there is so much life after abuse. There is so much life after it. And I guarantee you that it might take you a few times to find something that works for you, but I guarantee you that this life is is worth living. Um, You've got so many survivors who do so many different things um, and I'm sure that you'll at least listen to one of us and relate. <laughs> and it could be me. It might be somebody else. Yeah. Um, and I think with you as well, it's such a good point. You know, equine therapy is is really highlighted in, in as a specific form of therapy. I think that it's actually mm-hmm. taxable on Medicare at the moment as well. So um, it's just worth definitely trying. And I couldn't think of anything that I actually want to do more. That would be awesome. Yeah. I want to go. I'm a, I'm a little bit scared of horses, but I do want to go. <laughs> <laughs> they they are quite big, to be fair. <laughs> I don't know why I'm always just scared of my fingers getting chopped off. <laughs> <laughs> just don't feed them; you'll be fine. <laughs> I don't know why. I I I have no frame of reference for that, but I've always just, you know, when you go. F- walk past people that are fishing on a pier, I'm always really, really acutely aware of my eyes that they're going to get a fish hook stuck <laughs> in them. Yeah. And I'm the same around horses. I'm scared that they're just going to go nip and get, take my fingers. I don't know why. <laughs> That's quite an irrational brain. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we have it's got me here. Eye on these triggers, don't we? You know, our bodies are telling us something. No, it's so true. But thank you so much, Charlotte, for coming on and sharing your story with me. You've been such a pleasure to talk to. We've had such a good conversation. Um, I will share all of your um, resources and everything as well, but where can people find you um, if they want to reach out and chat to you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and Facebook, both at Charlotte Ellis Official. We have got um, a podcast as well, which is um, Charlotte Ellis Official, The Survivor Story. Um, And we're in the process of, I say we, it's only me. um, I'm in the process of getting a website as well, which is basically where everything will just be in one hub. There'll be resources for people to get help from. There'll be obviously my story, other people's stories, and then everything else that I'm advocating will all just be in one main hub on the website. So, um, yeah. So if you follow me on social media, that'll obviously be put out there once, once that's up and available. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. Um, I will link everything, but for now, this is Reclaim Me signing out. Bye. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.